you have your Bibles, if you turn with me to the book of the Psalms, uh, chapter 1, Psalm chapter 1. My uh, wife and kids got me a hammock for uh, Father's Day, and uh, it did dawn on me when I got it that I would probably not be able to use it very often, kids. And then you know how husbands and wives are. My wife sometimes has expectations of me, and the hammock could get in the way of those expectations. And so right when I'm using the gift, an expectation would come that would prohibit the use of the gift. But I did get some hammock time this past week. And uh, just to give you some inside information on a pastor, I'm usually consistently just thinking about the text I'm preaching on. If I have a down moment, that's where my mind is. I'm just chewing on it, thinking about it. And so I was laying in the hammock thinking about this text. And one of the things that I thought of, this word man, blessed is the man, that's us. And, And here... I'm going to be in front of all of you, and there's all mix of people who are here this morning. We have people who are spiritually zealous. They do have an eagerness for Christ and a desire to grow in His Word. And, and, and then we have people who aren't. We have people here this morning who are spiritually apathetic. Uh, you're asleep. You, you don't have much care to be growing in Christ. You come to church. You maybe don't even know why. But there just isn't a zeal. Might be people at home like that. We have people who are very proud here this morning. They can't be told no. They can't think they're wrong. They're just a spiritual cut above the rest. We have people who are going to be in deep sorrow this morning. You've already heard three or condolences to those three families and the loss of parents. And and that kind of sorrow is hard. It's really hard work. That kind of sorrow. And for them to hear God's word is, is hard. Um, and so we have all of those. We have all of those. And that, so how do you bring the text of God's word to that, to, to this dear, beloved gathering of people who are so diverse? How do you do it? And I think Psalm 1 is one of those texts that is, it's so foundational and it, It's the first psalm for a reason, and it is very applicable to all of those kinds of people. It really is rich in six verses. And I want to read you something that I read this morning. I read it to the singers and musicians. This is Richard Baxter out of his book, To Pastors. here, Here he's exhorting pastors to some liveliness. And he says, if we were heartily devoted to our work, it would be done more vigorously and more seriously than it is by most of us. How few ministers do preach with all their might or speak about everlasting joys and everlasting torments. We're going to see that at the end of this psalm. Everlasting joys or everlasting torments. That's the reality facing each one of us. You as parents know that the reality for the children that you love is that there is either at the end of their lives everlasting heaven or everlasting hell. That's the reality for each one of us. So he's saying, in light of that, why don't more pastors preach like that's true? 
or speak about everlasting joys, everlasting torments in such a manner as to make men believe that they are in good earnest. It would make a man's heart ache to see a company of dead, drowsy sinners sitting under a minister and not hear a word that is likely to quicken or awaken them. Oh, sirs, how plainly, how closely, how earnestly should we deliver a message of such moment as ours when the everlasting life or everlasting death of our fellow men is involved in it. Methinks we are nothing, we are in nothing so wanting as in this seriousness, and yet there is nothing more unsuitable to such business than to be slight and dull. What? Speak coldly for God and men's salvation? Can we believe that our people must be converted or condemned and yet speak in a drowsy tone? In the name of God, brethren, labor to awaken your own hearts before you go into the pulpit. That you may be fit to awaken the hearts of sinners. Remember that they must be awakened or damned. And that a sleepy preacher will hardly awaken drowsy sinners. Though you give the holy things of God the highest praises in word, yet if you do it coldly, you will seem by your manner to unsay what you said. And I don't want to do that. I don't want you to, to be under that. I don't want your kids to grow up under that. This week, if you've been reading along in our Bible reading program, uh, we read, I don't know if it's this week or last week, through Colossians. And then this week through First Thessalonians. And in Colossians 1.24, it says, Him we proclaim. Talking to preachers. We proclaim Christ. Warning everyone. That's, that's what we're supposed to do for those who are very sorrowful here this morning and those who aren't. For those who are spiritually eager and those who are spiritually asleep. We're supposed to warn you. In the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, Speaking to preachers again, he says that a useful preacher is this kind. The house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they're not willing to listen to me, because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Don't you resemble that sometimes? Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as theirs. What... These preachers are to preach in such a way to awaken hard-hearted sinners. And he goes on in verse 17, Son of man, I have made you a watchman. Whatever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them a warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you give him no warning, no speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood I require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. And so I wonder if that's what you think the preaching of God's word is for. Because I don't want to be useless to you. I really don't. And here we have a psalm speaking of the most incredible blessings from God on high for doing the most simple thing. And the kind of blessing for doing the most simple thing from the almighty, gracious God that makes us fruitful and useful and prosperous, or if we don't, be like chaff that the wind drives away. And that's what we're talking about here this morning. 
we are talking about two realities of two ways to live, one of which ends up not having a standing among God's people at the end of time, but perishing apart from the presence of the Lord, and one of which stands with God's people for all time and eternity before the face of God with incredible joy and pleasure and delight. And that's the reality set before you here this morning. Do you have ears to hear? Do you? So that's what I'm praying, that God would give us that. And I know some of you need encouragement today, so I pray that that comes. And yet I know all of us consistently need warning because I know this. If you're a Christian, you know that you're not yet what you want to be. But there are things you did this week that you didn't want to do, but you did them, and you did them again and again and again. Things you said, things you didn't do. That you know you have progress to make in the faith, and God has ordained that one of the main ways that you're helped long in this walk before our God humbly is the preaching of God's word with earnestness that warns you and teaches you with encouragement so that you might live more holy before our God. That's what this is for. So that's what I want Psalm 1 to do. That's what I want Psalm 1 to do. So let's pray for that. Let me, let me, let me read it and then let's pray. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly established in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. And by your appointment they stand this day for all things are your servants. Everything obeys you, God. Teach us to delight in your law or we would have perished in our afflictions. May we never forget your precepts for by them you have given us life. We are yours. Save us for we do seek your precepts. The wicked do lie in wait to destroy your people but teach us to consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfections, but your commandments are exceedingly broad. And so help us now to meditate on them. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 1 is often referred to as the preface for the entirety of the book of Psalms. Uh, It is, as one commentator said, this psalm nobly fills the place of a prologue to the whole book of Psalms. You know, there's 150 psalms. You might note in your Bible above Psalm 1, it says book 1. So the book of Psalms are divided into five books. They're arranged very carefully and intentionally. And uh, Psalm 1 and 2, but particularly Psalm 1, stands at the head of them as an introduction to the entirety of them all. So here you find in these short six verses all that you're going to see in the next 149 chapters. And and one of the main things you see is this great distinction 
this, this great separation of mankind into the rich, wicked and the righteous, into the blessed and into those who aren't. And you'll see that play out in the rest of the Psalms. And so uh, some have said in this Psalm, you see all of the Christian life. You see it all. Because you see the most fundamental foundational part. So we don't find in this brief song a, a total, a full, complete description of all that you need to do to reach this happiness, this blessedness. And yet in these short six verses, says Charles Spurgeon, we have the highest and first that is needed to find it. Isn't that helpful? Isn't it helpful every once in a while in your life to just go back to what is the most important? What is the, the chief thing of importance? Get that in, in order first. Set that in order first. That's what we see in Psalm 1. So this first word, blessed, is the enticement. It's, it's what you and I want more than we want anything, which is happiness. That's what this word is. This word is very curious in that it's plural. Blessedness is, it's, it's a very strong word. It is offering to us the highest, deepest, satisfactions. And so if you want this, you do this one thing. So Spurgeon says, in these short six verses, we find the highest verse, what is needed, and to live in this world, and to be able to distinguish and discern between God's beloved saints and all the other people on the face of the earth. If you want to reach this happiness, then give ear to this psalm. So what I want to start with is God. God's doing everything. In this psalm, the blessing that comes to the man is from God. Right? So here, here's a God sized blessing offered to you. This isn't a blessing offered from somebody who has very little. This is a blessing offered by God Himself, the unlimited one, the eternal one. This isn't like a supersize. Would you like to supersize it? This, this is beyond all comprehension, this blessing. It's from God. God is the one whose law we are to delight in. It's his law. God is the one who plants the tree by the streams of the water, and it's God's streams of water. God is the one that bears the fruit on us. God is the one that prospers us and nourishes us so that we never wither. God is the wind that drives the wicked away like chaff. God is the one judging the wicked from the righteous. And God is the one who knows the way of the righteous that you'll not perish. And so God is the one doing it all here. But what I want you to consider is, as you consider the nature of God, the character of God, what he's like. Let me do it this way. I was thinking of it this, this way. Uh, Lynn Drescher, she was up here singing. If you were to go to her house, you would see a garden of all gardens. It's massive. I think it's bigger than her house. And it's well kept. And she's generous with it. So if you wanted some gardening advice, you could go to her because you could trust her because she's done it for years and you could see her garden and go, she's somebody I could trust. I don't, is there anybody here who doesn't have a green thumb, who kills things rather than makes them live? Yeah, there's a few of you. Like, you don't go to those people for gardening advice. And if they were to give you gardening advice, you shouldn't listen to it because they don't have any idea what they're doing. 
So here we have God telling you, God who is perfect, who is holy, who is righteous, the God who knows all things, and he is giving you what you should delight in above all other things. And if God, whose delights are perfect, God doesn't waste his time delighting in things that are not worth his delight. And God himself, this God, is giving you the one thing that you should put your heart's delight in. That you should affix your highest affections on. Can you trust him? If you look on Rotten Tomatoes, you know, the website that tells you movie critiques, and you, you have two ratings, the critics' ratings and the ordinary average Joe ratings. And let me give you some advice. Don't ever look at the critics' ratings because they're wrong. The movies that the critics like, like, you won't like, and the movies that the people all like, you'll like. That, that's what we've come to come to attention on. And so pay attention to what God loves. <laughs> Pay attention to what God is telling you. Set your delight here. This is worth it. This will pay you back. And so can you trust what God is telling you to put your delight in? Can you? Don't you and I waste so much time chasing after those things that do not repay the attention you give them? Isn't that true? So isn't it kind of God? Isn't this loving of God to say, at the first before all 150 Psalms in chapter 1, I'm going to name the one thing that you must delight in if you're to experience all the blessings and all the rest of the 149 Psalms. Here's the one thing above all things to set your delight upon. This is our creator speaking. This is this is the one who fashioned us speaking. This is the one who didn't with his own, own, withhold his only son speaking. Delight yourself in this one thing. My word. My word. The scriptures. My law. Don't get hung up on the term the law of the Lord. It's, it's a general way of saying the entirety of his revelation. The first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, are often referred to as the law. There's a reason why the, five, the Psalms are divided up into five books. They're kind of a mirror to the first five books of the Bible. So he's basically saying it's the law of the Lord, my word. Everything that I've inspired by my Holy Spirit to the prophets and the apostles. Delight yourself there. Delight yourself. His, God's taste can be trusted. So with that in mind then, let's, let's consider this word man. Blessed is the man. Who is this man? Who, who is this man? Well, it's, it's you and me. It's, it's you and me. I, I think sometimes we come to the Bible and we see this great offer of blessing, this delightful description in verse 3 of this tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and it never withers, it prospers and everything. And I think we as Christians, I, if we can be honest with ourselves here, we think that this is just for like a select few. This is, this is for a very select, elite, like Navy SEAL type Christians. 
that there is a class of Christians that's cut above the class or the, the regular rabble of Christians, and they get this. But the rest of us don't. I think the psalmist is very intentional under the inspirational Holy Spirit here to make this word as general as could be. It's offered to us all. It, God is, to use a term that we should hate today, but apply it rightly, he's egalitarian in this offer of blessing. It's without distinction. It's without distinction to the amount of money you have or don't have. It's without distinction to your sex. It's without distinction to your ethnicity. It's without distinction to your office in the church. It's without distinction to your education level. It's without distinction to your age. You get that, kids? The one thing that you want more than anything, to be happy, to be blessed, is offered to you, provided you do the one thing that he says here. So it's a great mistake to think that this is for some higher level of godliness for a better sort of person. We all have need of the same Savior. And he offers this to any who have faith to do what he's saying here to do. But we also should say that this blessing is for those who have come to faith in Jesus. We actually see two resurrections in this chapter. You have this resurrection in verse 6 when the Lord returns and he separates the goats from the sheep. You have this judgment day return of Jesus when all who are dead in Christ will be raised to everlasting, glorious, blessed life with him forever. And that's because they experienced a resurrection in their life before that when they came to faith in Jesus Christ and they were made alive by him. So the blessed man is first a saved man. He's first a man cleansed or a woman cleansed of all their sins, counted righteous by the great gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So we must first say, are you that kind of a man or woman? Do you have faith in Jesus? Because if not, you're, you're the wicked then in this chapter. You're the unrighteous. You're the one who will not stand in the congregation at the end of time. And as you can see, God is here naming you that. God does not play with things of eternal consequence. God, the Spirit, inspired to name you wicked, sinner, scoffer, judged, and sent away from his presence forever, not to dwell in the delight of God's people. It's because of your sin. Because you have no regard for your creator. It's because you live your life by your own leave. Because you will not bow to him who has made you and given you everything that you've ever had in this life. Because you have offended and set yourself as an enemy 
to Almighty God in your pride and think then that he should do something for you just because you're you. And so if you will not turn from your sin in humble repentance to faith in Jesus Christ, you will perish eternally away from the presence of the Lord. And one of the most difficult things in the Psalms that are introduced here in Psalm 1 is God's people are taught to delight in that. We are taught to pray and sing to God for justice against the wicked. Particularly when the wicked are harming God's people. I think you can get your mind around this. If you pay attention at all to the news in the world, you see Christians, particularly in the sub-Saharan part of Africa, in the Middle East and in China, suffering incredibly at the hands of the wicked. And those of you who are here without faith in Jesus have more in common with them than you do with us who have faith in Christ. And God's people are being taught here to take comfort in the judgment against the wicked. Because I think if it was your daughter beheaded by Boko Haram, you could take comfort then in the judgment of that man. Or to bring it closer to home. You have police officers escorting mothers and fathers into an abortion clinic to chop their baby into bits. Can you take comfort in God's judgment against that wickedness? Can you? I can. And that does not at all mean that I do not realize that I am, I, I am capable of that kind of sin also, apart from the saving grace of God. This is what the Psalms do to you. They provide you great comfort, but in, in places that didn't show up on your Sunday school flannel graphs and that didn't show up in the Sunday school songs you learned. That, that these verses aren't the ones memorized in Awana because they're terrifying. Because they teach us to fear God. They teach us maturity before a holy God. Then we also say that the man here is, of course, Jesus. The blessed man is the man who delighted himself fully in the word of God and obeyed it, who bore great fruit, who didn't wither, who prospers in all that he did. And who else is that but Jesus Christ? So here in Psalm 1, we're taught to look at Jesus. We're, we're reminded again of what he was like. And, and yet, in all of the blessedness of the Son of God who took on flesh, we see all of his suffering. And so we're reminded that in this life of blessing, we'll come intense suffering and loss and grief. In Isaiah chapter 53, right, right towards the end of the chapter, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Lord, has put him, the Son of God, to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt, for our guilt, 
Jesus was the offering for my guilt, for your guilt. Then he, this suffering servant of God, this son of God, he shall see his offspring. He's fruitful in his suffering. He's prosperous through the cross. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous of my servant make a many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. So we meet Jesus in this psalm. And it comforts us again that we have a sufficient Savior. In all of our sins, in all of our failures, in all of our refusals to delight ourselves in the law of the Lord, in all of our being enticed by things of the world more than by the things of God, in all of those things, Jesus serves us as the blessed suffering Savior who is sufficient for your and my sins, all of them. Every one of them. And so then you are welcome to this life. It's yours in Christ. If you'll do one thing. What is the one thing? What's the one thing? Actually, there's two things that are one thing. There's first the no. There's first something you can't do. It's first negatively described what the blessed man doesn't do. The blessed man will not hold truck with the lifestyle, and the worldview of the wicked. Blessed is the man who does not. So, God the Father is a good father. And good fathers say no to their children. And good pastors say no to their sheep. And our good God says no to us. And what does he say no to? You are not to walk in the counsel of the wicked. You are not to stand in the way of sinners. You are not to sit in the seat of scoffers. Isn't this totally un-PC to say something like this? Who are you to make such a judgment? You realize that this verse causes you to have to judge people. You have to make a judgment And you have to make a judgment about people. Are these people wicked sinners and scoffers? And if so, then I have a duty before God, if I want God's blessing, to relate to them in a certain way. You see how hard it is to be a Christian. Last week I brought up Christ's description, command, of his disciples, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. That's what it looks like here. Because some of these people are very dear to you. Some of these people are very dear to you. They're scoffers. They do not love the Lord. Their worldview is decidedly against the scriptures. And so you're to say no to them. This is the discipline of saying no. And this is a relational no. And there is pain and there is loss and there is embarrassment. This is, in your teens, not being enticed by sinners. This is not going along with those who are going in a wicked way. And you know the cost for it. 
You know the cost for it at work when you will not join in the ungodly gossip around the lunch table. You know when, when you're out on the road and you won't go to the strip club with the other guys, the, sh- the embarrassment that they're going to give you the next day at work. You know it. That's what this is. So there's a progression in this. There is this progression of wicked sinner scoffer. There's a progression of walk, sit, stand. There's a progression of counsel, stand, sits. And so nobody ends up in the last one but through years of practice. But it's also very passive in a sense, isn't it? You don't have to do much to to join in here. You really don't have to do anything. You just have to go with the flow to join in with this. To go back to gardening, what do you have to do to get a garden full of weeds? Nothing. Nothing. You don't have to do a thing. What do you have to do to have a a well-kept garden? You got to do a lot of work. You got to pull weeds. Or you got to make your kids pull weeds. (laughs) And so if, if you want to experience the judgment of God, you just really don't do anything. Just go with the current of our society. That's it. Just coast. Just, just do what your heart wants to do. Just give in. But there, it's not just a no. It's not just a no. There is a no, but, but then he, after denying himself, he finds delights. Let, let me say one more thing about this no. There is a worldview here. He doesn't stand in the counsel, in the way, in the scoffing. There is a worldview that a Christian will not join in. There is a way of seeing the world that a Christian must utterly reject. It's very prevalent in our day right now, isn't it? There is a view of the world that is largely just materialistic. That there is no transcendent. There is no spiritual. It's, it's only what you see. It's Darwinian. Everything you see is just material and time and chance acting on matter that forms certain organisms that evolve into other organisms, but there's really no transcendent thing. There's no transcendent beauty or law. And then uh, the view of our world is division, particularly by race in our moment. They, They really want to divide us up into oppressed and oppressor groups. That's a profoundly unbiblical view of the world. We have one race. We're all in Adam. We're all fallen in sin. We all need a Savior. The, the view that our world is propagating, that is taught in our schools, that is on every airwave of every major news network every evening, this is the worldview behind everything that's being taught. Right? This is the content of the music and the movies. And we, we will not 
walk with that. We will not stand with that. We will not sit with that. We must reject it. We must, and, and so here, let's just talk about education. Education is worldview formation. Education isn't just teaching your kids how to do division. It's not just facts. It's forming a way to look at the world. It's forming character. It's profoundly spiritual, religious. You cannot separate education from religion and spiritual formation. It is inherently spiritual. And so, if you're going to raise your children... According to Ephesians 6, in the, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, in the education of the Lord, you can't just tack on a Bible class. You have to teach children how to view math through a profoundly biblical worldview. You have to teach your children how to view history through a profoundly biblical worldview. You have to teach them to delight in the law of the Lord in all of the educational subjects. That's how you begin to apply this, to reject the worldview of the world and then embrace a delight in God's law in everything they see. So they view the riots going on through Scripture and not through the prevailing cultural winds. That's what this is for. That's what this is telling parents to do. So the one thing that you must do, he doesn't just say no Right, to just say no and leave it void, something else is going to fill the void. He says no, and then he gives you the thing to do, and it's delight. Isn't that fun? Here's the command of God. Delight. This, this term is in the imperative. It's a, it's a command. <laughs> Have fun in the, in the law of the Lord. Like You can't. Give yourself enough pleasure in the law of the Lord. Don't put a limit on how much enjoyment you get from God's word. Don't cap it. You can't have enough fun here, brothers and sisters. Like, don't, don't stop. This is the one addiction you can give yourself to. This is the one that doesn't have limits in your life. Isn't that wonderful of God? Doesn't that tell you something about his character? He isn't a grumpy father who just says, no, once more, that's it. Right? That's enough fireworks, no more. A guy's like, no, delight yourself. Here's my command. Thrill yourself on my word. Like, drink more, have another. That's what God's doing in this one. Isn't that fun of him? It's also teaching you how to be a father, isn't it? Like, I have another marshmallow. Because you want to teach your kid that God is not stingy. Now, after 10, that's probably enough. I'm, I'm just kidding. Right? I, little humor, it's okay. You can smile and laugh. Because God is teaching us delight. And delight in what? The law of the Lord. Again, this is the entirety of Scripture. It's the whole of Scripture. Why is a man to find, why is the blessed man to find such delight in this? Because it's God's. This book is the creation of our Creator. 
This is God's word. It's the law of the Lord. And he is a good Lord, isn't he? Who else in your life has transferred you from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son? Who else has transferred all of your sin onto his son, crushed him on the cross so that he would suffer the penalty you were due in your place for your sin, and then gift you the righteous obedience of his son so that when he looks on you, he's looking upon the perfection of his son. Who else would do that for you? And here he's saying, here, like this, Tells you all about it. Everything about me. Everything about my creation. Everything about what is pleasing to me. Everything about me. It's my word. Delight yourself in it. Give yourself to it. How much? Night and day. Night and day. Night and day. Night and day. Spurgeon says, here is a letter from home telling us of our Father's grace and permitting us to read the precious secrets of his heart of love for us. Let me say that again. Here is a letter from home. Some of you have sons and daughters serving in other places. You know, how precious it is, is to get a letter from home or if you're at camp away and you get a letter from mom and dad, how precious it is to get a letter from home, to hear your name from the counselor saying, letter for... Here is a letter from home telling us of our Father, telling us of our Father's grace and permitting us, encouraging us, urging us to read it night and day of the precious secrets of his heart of love for us. A godly man's time, the blessed man's time is occupied with the word. I love this word meditate here. You know what this word meditate is? It's muttering. You ever mutter? People walk around, you see you talking to yourself. You're muttering. You're talking to yourself. You're, there's things processing in your brain, and they're leaking out your mouth. I do this not infrequently. I'm around muttering my sermon. My wife hears me preaching this sermon many times throughout the week as I mutter it. I'm mulling over it. That's what he's telling us to do. Mutter the word of God. It so soaks you in that it's muttering. You're, you're mulling it. You're, you're chewing the cud of God's word. You ever seen a cow chew the cud? That's what this word is. There's a constancy And these kind of people are fruitful. They're prosperous. They're helpful. This is for us. This is for you and for me. There's stability here. There's solidness here. There's growth here. There's nourishment and provision here. There is fruitfulness. We all want to be as Christians fruitful and useful and helpful. This is where it starts. Isn't this the most beautiful picture you see in the Bible? I think verse 3 is one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. Held out for doing a very simple thing. Just a very simple thing. 
Let me read you, if I can, in closing, an account of a man like this. This is a biography of a Scottish pastor. You heard the name John Knox? Okay, John Knox was the man who brought the gospel to Scotland. He was the first reformer. Scotland had some kind of Catholicism, but it was Catholicism combined with the paganism of Scotland. And John Knox very courageously went to Scotland and preached the gospel and established the church that we know as the Presbyterian Church. The man who took up after John Knox and filled John Knox possible is a, a man by the name of Robert Bruce. It's a biography of Robert Bruce. The account I'm going to read you is the account of his dying. He lived a long life, 75 plus years at a time where that was way beyond the life expectancy. He suffered greatly. Probably the best story in the book is he was preaching and his church was in the capital. I think it's Edinburgh. Is that the capital of Scotland? I should know this. I just read this, so I don't remember. Anyways, the, the king, James VI, attended his church. And the story is told that when Robert Bruce got up to preach, the king started having a side conversation with somebody in his booth. So the king was interrupting his sermon by just talking out loud with a man. And so once Robert Bruce just, you know what you do as a teacher when somebody's talking, you just be quiet for a moment. And then the quietness quiets the person who's interrupting. He did that on two occasions. He stopped preaching completely and waited till the king was quiet. On the third time, he looked right at the king and said, it behooves the animals of the forest when the lion roars to be quiet. And it behooves the little king to shut his mouth when the lion of Judah is roaring. <laughs> That's what he said to the king. He feared God, this man did. He was something. He was banished twice to exile for his preaching of the word boldly. He suffered greatly. And at the end of his life, here, here's what happened. His daughter was with him. Bruce came down to breakfast on the very morning of his death. His younger daughter Martha was by his side and he enjoyed the morning meal. As he mused in silence, as he muttered, suddenly he cried, Hold, daughter, hold. My master is calling me. He asked that the family Bible should be brought, the large house Bible. But his sight failed him. He couldn't see. He couldn't read. Cast me up the eighth of Romans, he cried. He, he, he asked his daughter to read chapter 8 of the book of Romans. And he repeated much. He, he muttered aloud. He repeated much the latter portion of the scripture till he came to the last two verses. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus the Lord. So he just repeated that after his daughter read it to him. Then he said, set my finger on these words, said the blind dying man. God be with you, my children. I have breakfasted with you and shall sup with my Lord Jesus this night. I die believing these words. That's a man who has delighted himself in the law of the Lord night and day. That's how he dies. So may God give us that kind of grace to die like that. Let's pray.
Father, there are many temptations in our lives, many things that the enemy and his demonic horde and our own flesh in this world want to use to distract us from this one thing, this most precious thing of delighting in your law, where there we meet you. And so, God, protect us from these things. Help us to see them for what they are. Teach us how to live this, how to apply it. And so, God, may your Holy Spirit now lead us into this kind of lifestyle. May we just be ordinary people, normal people, Christian people, but whose main delight is your word. And that we would meditate on it, that we would mutter over it, and that we would die well in it. And so, God, please give us this grace to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.